Well, this morning, we're going to finish looking at the supper. The supper as the emblem of eating and drinking, the gathering and the feasting depicted in Scripture. From the tree of life in Genesis to the marriage supper of the Lamb, which we heard read from the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation this morning. Now, one might think, I hope not anymore uh, at the end of the series, but one might think that the supper is not that big a deal. I mean, after all, it's not mentioned explicitly very many times in Scripture. Yet, this phenomenon can be deceiving. We have said it before, and I will say it again. Texts need to be weighed, not counted. Right? Texts need to be weighed, not counted. It's not how many verses. It's which verses. In what place. Said by whom. At what time in redemptive history. And with what connection to the whole biblical narrative. Right? And when we start to think this way, and it takes time right, to cultivate this way of seeing things. But when we start to think this way, the Eucharist begins to loom much larger. I mean, after all, this is what Jesus did to distill his whole life and ministry and passion on the night he was betrayed. And that alone would give it immense weight and proportion. So think of it this way. All the promises of God... All the promises of the law and the prophets, right? They are yea and amen, Paul tells us in Jesus Christ. And the Eucharist is the sign and seal given to us to remember Christ by. And that means that the Eucharist gathers up all the promises of communion with God, right? Spoken of in the law and in the prophets, It's the seal of all those promises, and in so doing, it's the beginning, the fulfillment of those promises. And so the Eucharist, and this brings us right back to the first sermon in this series, the Eucharist as an appetizer or a foretaste directs us to this coming banquet, which we'll speak about in a minute. It orders us to this. Right? There's, now, when I use the words orders us, I'm using them in the strong sense. Right? Like, you know, certain things order you to other things. Medicine orders you to health. In the sense that that's its purpose. It directs, it directs toward health. It doesn't direct toward other things. It doesn't make you a nuclear physicist. It has a, it has a telos. Right? That's what it does. The engine of a car orders to, you toward moving through space. It doesn't order you to flying. So if a thing orders you to another thing, that means it doesn't order you to a whole bunch of other things. It orders you to this thing, this central thing. But we, so we would say the resurrection of Jesus Christ, for example, from the dead, orders us to the general resurrection of the dead at the end of the age. It has an intrinsic relationship to that. But this is a strong kind of ordering. It's not just that it points. It's not just that it guarantees. It's not just that it symbolizes. It's that it is that reality already underway. 
And this is really difficult for us because we're such, you know, we're linear space-time creatures. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Monday, Tuesday. This is the way we live and move and have our being. It turns out this is not the way the New Testament says we are to live and move and have our being. So if I were to ask, when will the general resurrection of the dead take place? When will all the tombstones in that cemetery at the end of the road, when will they they come out? When will they come forth? This is the Christian answer. It is already underway. Because Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. It's like going into a harvest field that's ready to be reaped, grabbing some of the grain, and then waving it before the Lord. That's what the resurrection of Jesus is. This is what the first fruits metaphor by Paul means. So when we say the resurrection of Jesus directs us to the end, we don't mean, yeah, it sort of points toward the end, or it sort of promises the end. It is the end. The resurrection of the dead at the end of the age is already underway. Now that will change your philosophy of history. That's going to mess with you. That's what I mean when I say the Eucharist orders us, not to some future earthly end, but to the coming feast. With Abraham, Jesus says, with Isaac, with Jacob, with all the prophets. This is in Luke 13. In other words, with all the faithful of Israel and with the redeemed Gentiles of every tribe and tongue and nation and language from north, south, east, and west in the consummated kingdom of God. This orders you to that because this is the beginning of that. When will you feast with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the saints and all the prophets in the kingdom of God? The answer to that question is we are already doing that. So the Eucharist points. It has a telos. It directs us. The hope of Israel is the resurrection of the dead and the feast that ensues on Mount Zion. And so the Eucharist then is planted in the center of history as the place of eating and drinking, the place which points back to the cross of Christ and forward toward the marriage supper of the Lamb. And it's that forward-pointing feature that we want to look at this morning using the New Testament text from the book of Revelation. So we'll make the three points that are there in your outline. The coming, the clothing, and the consummation. So first, the coming. So again, just, just to reiterate, because it's not instinctive for us or natural to us. When we talk about the marriage supper of the Lamb, you should start to think, oh, that's not just something that's out there. That's what we're tasting and partaking of every single week. Right? So, Revelation 19, verse 6, John hears what seems to be the voice of a great multitude. And we know from the context that this is the liturgy conducted in the highest heavens. So where this is, right, is the place of God's throne, the sanctuary where the transfigured Jesus is, where all the martyrs dwell. The place is filled, we're told, with myriads and myriads of burning angelic hosts. It's the place where the glory of the triune God radiates forth in immediate fullness 
to that place, you are told in the book of Hebrews, you have already come. It's remarkable. This voice in the text, the corporate voice, we're told is like the roar of many waters. It's like the voice of Christ himself in Revelation chapter 1. Like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. The coming of God in judgment and salvation is answered in the text by this thunderous praise. And they say, hallelujah. And the reason, and this is a raucous hallelujah. And the reason for it is the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. It's a statement of God's unparalleled, unthreatened, unhindered, sovereign majesty in his rule over all things. And the force of the expression is, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, has begun to reign or has taken up his reign. So this is not here, this is not a statement of God's general sovereignty over history. That's gloriously true. The Lord has always reigned. But there is coming a time when Jesus, as he says in Matthew 25, will sit on his glorious throne. So God judges the nations now, but he judges them with great patience, with great forbearance. This is the day of salvation. He allows the gospel to go forth. He holds the final judgment in abeyance. He judges the world through common grace, rain, harvest, and seasons, and day and night. There's a tender patience in the way God rules over the world now and the nations. But there's coming a time when the judge himself comes into the courtroom and sits in session and then rectifies accounts finally, definitively, and eternally. This is the time of our text. And so the Lord, our God, the Almighty reigns is a statement of the establishment of his full, future, consummated kingship. God reigns. Here he is the king who has now deposed all pretenders to his throne. And so the chorus continues. And it's interesting. It's a statement of God's sovereign majesty, of his coming to judge. And it continues with a wedding announcement. That's what you get, a wedding announcement. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him the glory. For, here's the reason, the wedding of the Lamb has come. With the kingdom, right? With the reign of the Lord God Almighty comes the wedding. You'll notice this in the text in Revelation. Verse 7 says, speaks of the marriage supper of the Lamb. I'm sorry, speaks of the marriage of the Lamb. And then verse 9 speaks of the marriage supper of the Lamb. So with the kingdom, here's the sequence. With the kingdom comes the wedding, and with the wedding comes the feast. With the kingdom comes the wedding, with the wedding comes the feast. This is why when Jesus institutes the supper in Luke 22... Five times in that context, but twice right at the beginning, he says, I will not eat this again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. With the kingdom comes the wedding. With the wedding comes the feast. 
I will not drink this cup again until the kingdom of God comes. That's where we are here. This then is the fulfillment of the whole story of creation. Which, you know, you could narrate the whole story of creation a number of ways. A few weeks back, we did it using the tree of life. But we could tell it as a wedding story. Creation began with a wedding. And later, what's Israel's history, if not a turbulent bridal history? All you need is the book of Hosea to to show you that. God, God, Jonathan Edwards said this, God created the world so that the spirit could prepare a bride for the son. God created the world so that the spirit could create a gather and prepare a bride for the son. So all of history then is nuptial history. Right? Marriage is not a thing tacked onto history. It's built into the order of creation. All of history is nuptial history. And it ends then, as it ends here in this text, it ends with this face-to-face intimacy and communion between the bride and her divine husband. So, notice, again, we're in Revelation 19. Notice two things here. First, throughout the Old Testament, it is always Yahweh who is Israel's divine husband. Here, it's the Lamb. This is another testimony to the deity of Jesus Christ. The slain and risen Lamb takes the place of Yahweh as the divine bridegroom. And second... We are the bride of Christ now in the sense of being pledged, betrothed, awaiting the consummation of the marriage. That time of waiting, the time of this age, it's past in our text. So when the text says the marriage supper of the Lamb has come, it's simply to say Christ has come. It's simply to say that the midnight cry that we heard in the parable has rung out. The bridegroom is coming, go out to meet him. Right? And it's right after this in Revelation that the final judgment occurs. So what does all this mean? It's simple. That supper whets our appetite for this coming supper. That supper orders us in the strongest sense of the word. Right? When it, again, when a thing orders you to another thing, it means it tears you out of other orders. It doesn't order you to a whole bunch of subordinate things. It orders you to that thing. This supper orders us and directs us to heaven itself, to the coming wedding. It is a foretaste of the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is why we say, Sursum Corda, lift up your hearts. Lift up your hearts. Or in Paul's, think of Paul's radical reorienting words when he says, set your affection on things above, where Christ, the bridegroom, is, and not on things on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You have the same amount of earthly affection that dead men have. You have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. And when Christ, who is your life, 
appears, as he's appearing in our text in Revelation 19, then you also will appear and be unveiled with him in glory. And in this text, right, Christ is about to appear and the bride is about to appear with him in glory. So then, right, do not mistake the sacrament or the sign for the thing. It is not the thing itself. It points to the thing. And the thing is what we're reading about in this text. This is what the supper is all about. So that's the coming. Secondly, there's clothing. Turns out there's attire requirements for the wedding supper. We saw this a couple weeks back in Matthew 22, where the man with the wrong garment on, or the inappropriate garment, or the lack of a garment, is evicted from the feast. So look at verse 7. At the end it says that the marriage having come, the bride has made herself ready. She's actually announced here before her entrance, which we'll see in chapter 21. But here's what I want you to notice here. Notice how easily John puts together the obedience of the faithful church and the free grace of God. She made herself ready. She made herself ready. She prepared herself. But notice, she did so, the text says, because linen was granted to her, gifted to her, given to her to wear. So it's a beautiful statement of the richness of the gospel, of the relationship between faith and works. The free gift of righteousness, of being justified by faith in Christ alone, apart from all works, as Paul would put it, gives us title to heavenly glory. So, for example, back in Revelation chapter 7, we are told that the saints make their garments white in the blood of the Lamb. It's the blood of Christ which justifies. It's the blood of Christ which cleanses. It's the blood of Christ which makes you white. Saving faith does not need to be supplemented by works to get into heaven. The New Testament repeatedly and clearly tells us justification, salvation are gifts received by faith alone and not by works. But, and we see this here. True saving faith never remains alone. It's always accompanied by other graces, including good deeds. So the good deeds are not the cause of your salvation. They're not the ground of your salvation. They're not added to faith to get you all the way home. What they are is the fruit and the evidence of saving faith. So notice two things about this linen that you have to have on on the last day. One is, it's made white by the blood of Christ. Two is, it can be spoken of as being made white by your own good deeds. There's something of a tension or a paradox here for some of us, I think. All the linen we put on, all of our good deeds, is linen which was granted to us. Or in the the language of Ephesians, works which we were foreordained to do. So the text says of the bride, the linen she clothes herself in is her righteous deeds. Righteous deeds which are themselves cleansed and accepted 
only in the righteousness of Christ, but which nevertheless need to be present on the last day. So listen to the Isaiah text, which was our Old Testament lesson. Isaiah has this very tension in his text. This is chapter 60. 61, actually. Or 61, verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Well, so who put the gar- garment on you, Christ or you? Well, it turns out, both. Because it's all of grace, because there's no competition here, because everything is granted to you, everything is given to you freely, the bride then adorns herself. Even as she is clothed with garments of salvation given to her by God. In short, faith produces people who make themselves ready for the wedding feast. Right? And this readiness consists in being adorned with righteous deeds. Again, notice the text. The linen is radiant and pure. It's the righteous deeds of the saints. Why is this important? Well, for lots of reasons, right? We want to get the relationship between faith and works right. We want to get the relationship between our works and the final judgment right. We saw in the parable from Matthew's gospel a couple weeks ago that to lack the ready garment is to be evicted from the feast. Many are called, Jesus said, few are chosen. Right? Thus the supper is a place where the church asks herself, Am I clothed in linen, bright and pure? Am I doing the deeds God has foreordained for me to walk in? Have I made myself ready? Am I continually washing my garment in the blood of the Lamb when it gets defiled? Am I judging myself now so that I won't be judged then? The bride has done all that in this text. And she's ready. She has a spotless, radiant garment given to her by God but also consisting of her own righteous deeds in Christ. So that's the clothing. There's a dress code for the wedding. The third and final point is the consummation. Here I want to use the text from Revelation 21. Then, then meaning after the final judgment, that's that's what intervenes in Revelation 20. Then John sees a new heaven and a new earth, For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There's no more overlap here, as we have now, between the old creation and the new creation. The old creation is gone. It has passed away. This is a new heaven and a new earth. And when John sees it, immediately he sees something else. And I think this is provocative, too. He sees the holy city. The new Jerusalem, what Hebrews calls the heavenly Jerusalem, what Paul calls Jerusalem from above. We heard this in the call to worship. Here we have no lasting city. We're seeking the city which is to come, namely this city in Revelation 21. This is the city we belong to. 
This is the city which we are. This is the city which we seek. We are all about seeking a place to which we've already come by faith and which we have not yet set our eyes on. The text says that this city, this holy bride, comes down out of heaven from God. This is strange, I think, and unexpected. I mean, isn't the church right here? I mean, isn't the church a historical entity? What is it doing descending from heaven from God at the end of the age? That's what should happen to you as a reader when you come to this text. You should think, what is the church doing coming from the future? Down. From heaven down. I thought the church is a historical thing that just moves along the linear space-time axis from left to right. But here it is, descending from heaven. None of this denies, of course, that we have an outward shape and a historical existence. That's important. But the essence of the church, the inner mystery of the church, the place of her life is in heaven. The church dwells in heaven. Throughout the book of Revelation, the church are called those who dwell in heaven. And the earth dwellers in the book of Revelation, those who dwell on earth, that's just nomenclature for those who are unbelievers. Unbelievers dwell on earth. Christians dwell in heaven. The church is already seated at the right hand of God. Her affection, her treasure, her citizenship, her commonwealth, Paul says, is in heaven. That'll reorder your politics right there. When Paul says your citizenship is in heaven, he uses the word that we get the word politics from. Polituma. It's sometimes translated commonwealth. Your citizenship, your politics, your commonwealth are in heaven. You have already come to this Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. This is where we live. And so the church, right, this purified bride, at the end, she doesn't emerge from a long historical process. She descends from the future, from heaven at the end of the age, where we already are by faith. It's like you'll receive the fullness and the reality and the substance of your real being at the end because your real being is already raised with Christ, right? You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And that life, which yours is, the mystery of the human redeemed person, shall appear in glory when Christ appears. And so John sees this holy city. He sees this new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. And what is the next thing he says? Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Right? This reinforces what we looked at in chapter 19. This end, this consummation is the marriage supper of the Lamb. The consummation of the marriage. How's the consummation described? Well, it's described as a communion. If this orders you to that, and this is the, partake, the beginning of that, we'd expect something like this. Here's what it says. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. You might think that's a little anticlimactic. I mean, doesn't God dwell with us already? Hasn't Jesus come? Yes. Here's the climax, the consummation of all things. God will be with man and dwell with them. Not by faith, 
Not in an inaugural way, as we have now, but in consummate fullness. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them. All the Emmanuel with them stuff of Christmas is pointing to this Emmanuel withness of the end. This is the summary of the covenant bond used throughout Scripture. I will be their God. They shall be my people. That's what Christianity is about right there. That's the whole thing. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Face to face with me, communing with me in joy and delight and worship and everlasting bliss and glory in the new heavens and the new earth. Right? It is this and no other thing to which the Eucharist orders us and directs us. This is our hope. This is why when we follow Jesus Christ now, this is why we suffer. This is why we mortify sin. This is why we repent. We're looking for this city. We want to get to this feast. This is our singular overriding passion, and we must be reminded of it because it slips away and our glasses get fogged up. We can't see where we're going. The Eucharist is a reminder Not just a reminder. The Eucharist is a sign, but it's not merely a sign. The Eucharist is the beginning of this marriage, of this supper, with the patriarchs and the prophets and the redeemed of all the nations. So put on your linen. Make it white in the blood of Christ. Adorn yourself with good deeds. Fit yourself for the feast. Lift up your hearts. Commune with Christ in heaven. For here we proclaim his death until he with whom we dwell in heaven comes. Until he descends with his bride and the dwelling place of God is with man and fills the world with his glory. Amen.